This episode of the podcast is different, particularly in tone. My normal attempt at jokes, interviews that can go a bit awry, and Jonah Hill Moneyball references are inappropriate. There is a fine, delicate balance with these type of audio documentaries, and as listeners to this show know, I do sincerely want to thank ZipRecruiter and everyone here who has supported me. It's a long list from the bosses like Chris Corcoran to the guys who sit in the weeds with me recording at absurd hours. Chris Flannery, Shelby Royston, Lou Pellegrino, who without I'm not sure what I'd do. Episodes like these are a rare chance in life to do something good in the world. We owe that to each other, to friends and strangers alike. So before we start, thank you especially to ZipRecruiter. I'll give their following information as I always do, but actions are louder than words and they've stepped up for us. If you're currently hiring, there really isn't a better place to find the right people than ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And don't forget, you can listen to any of our episodes by subscribing to What Really Happened on Apple Podcasts or listen on Google Play, Spotify, our website, jankspod.com, or wherever you get your shows. On October 6, 1993, Michael Jordan, by far the most famous athlete in the world at the time, retired from basketball. He'd go on to return to play basketball and win three more championships, but ever since this first retirement, people have wondered why. He said he no longer felt a sense of having to prove something as a player, but he seemed to be in the prime of his career, so many, the media and public at large, couldn't believe that a person with such passion would just walk away. It was also during this time that the NBA was investigating Michael for his reported gambling debts. These theories only expanded because people started to tie Michael Jordan to his father's death. His father, James Jordan, was murdered on July 23, 1993 in North Carolina. This murder occurred only two and a half months before Michael retired. His father, again James Jordan, was Michael's best friend and confidant. And so unsubstantiated reports began asking if James Jordan was murdered by somebody carrying out retribution for Michael's gambling debt. I wanted to better understand if Michael's gambling, or anything else for that matter, actually had something to do with his father's passing, which resulted in Season 1, Episode 4 of this podcast. For those of you who have not listened, I realized that these allegations were not just unfounded, but insensitive, reckless, and malicious. Michael had just lost his father. And as he said, the media was pouring salt on an open wound. It was disturbing to do this to him. It can't be disputed that Michael Jordan is larger than the game of basketball. He inspired millions of young people, minorities, and the world at large. All the while, at the same time, people were consumed with trying to find an ounce of anything that could make him look bad. Because I wanted to really cover every angle, I also researched the trial of the two men, Daniel Green and Larry Demery, who 
who were convicted of killing Michael's father, again, James Jordan. During this process, something happened. I was not looking for it and certainly not expecting it. As I examined the trial of the two men, again, Daniel Green and Larry Demery, who were convicted for the murder, I found myself confused in regards to the investigation and trial, particularly with respect to Daniel Green. He has now been incarcerated for this murder for 25 years, arrested at 18 years old and now 43. He's admitted to helping his friend Larry commit an unrelated robbery weeks before the murder. He's also always been forthright about helping his friend dispose of the victim's body. I am not overlooking this. But with regards to the murder of Mr. James Jordan, Daniel Green has always maintained his innocence. If you're interested in the story of Michael Jordan or whatever else is out there about him being connected to this, go somewhere else. While Michael Jordan was the entry point into how I got to this place, I am here to talk about Daniel Green. If there's an innocent man behind bars, regardless of whom or the circumstances, I don't think most of us could sleep at night, which is why I've traveled twice to where all of this happened, Robeson County, North Carolina, and more specifically, a small city in the county, Lumberton. I've spoken with a variety of people on the record in the area and visited where James Jordan was killed. I have interviewed Daniel Green in prison twice and one of his lawyers, Chris Muma, several times. I've reviewed court documents, interrogation transcripts, found old local newspapers from the time the trial took place, and documents that predate the case. It's been sleepless nights, reading and rereading endless documents, and months of research. I don't say this to pat myself on the back. I say this because I haven't taken any of this lightly. I now have the following question. During the investigation and ensuing trial of Daniel Green, what really happened? I want to help provide context to all of this, which is why I'll include the backstory of many of those involved in this tragedy. First, I'll start with my own as it relates to this case, and it'll be the briefest. I have filmed or documented people from all walks of life, the homeless, professional athletes, young people with cancer, or my own summer living in a nursing home when I was 19 years old. Additionally, I've directed a feature documentary titled Dream Killer, the story of Ryan Ferguson, a young man who at 19 years old was sent to prison for a murder that he had nothing to do with. My crew and I documented him for about two years before he was let out, after nearly 10 years behind bars. To be clear, it was his lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, his family, and others that led to him getting out. I just happened to document it. I also executive produced a documentary series titled Unlocking the Truth, which investigated three cases of potential wrongful convictions. Calvin Michael Smith, Convicted of murder and in prison for nearly 20 years, was released after the show's airing. To be clear, as an executive producer, it was our crew that helped move the needle and certainly Calvin's representation and family that got him out. Both made a point of crediting the show for contributing to his release. My only point is I'm not an expert on the justice system. I'm not a lawyer. I do have experience documenting the judicial system and I think this background allowed me to speak with a select group of previous coworkers that I trust, respect, and have been involved in cases of people wrongfully convicted. With the above in mind, I want to bring attention to this case while remaining as sensitive as possible to those whose lives have been ruined and Mr. James Jordan, who lost his life. Here's a brief account of what happened according to authorities, and thus much of what the media has reported through the years. 
Other than Daniel Green, you'll hear this name often, Larry Demery. He is the man that was also convicted alongside Daniel in the murder. Out of respect in most other circumstances, I would call James Jordan Mr. Jordan, but to ensure it's clear throughout this audio documentary who I'm talking about, I'll use the more casual James. On July 22nd, 1993, James Jordan, 56 years old, attends the funeral of Willie Kemp, a co-worker from the General Electric plant that they had worked for in Wilmington, North Carolina. Following the funeral, James visits the Kemp's home paying his respects to Mr. Kemp's wife. He left at around 9 p.m. to drive an old friend, Carolyn Robinson, back to Wilmington. He then had dinner at Carolyn and her husband James Robinson's home. They said James Jordan then left around midnight to go back home to Charlotte, where he and his wife Dolores lived. It's about a 200-mile ride, and taking the usual highway, it's about a a three-and-a-half-hour drive. According to authorities, during the very early hours of July 23, 1993, James Jordan pulls to the side of the road during the ride to take a nap. At about 2.30 a.m., the two men, Daniel and Larry, ambush James while asleep, attempting to rob him. The robbery doesn't go as planned. James wakes up from a reclined position in the vehicle, and they take his life. The two then dump the body and drive around in his car for three days. At one point, Larry leaves the car unattended, and a man is later arrested for stripping off the car's tires and stereo equipment. On August 3rd, 1993, the body of James Jordan is found in a swamp, 30 miles west of where the murder allegedly took place. But they can't identify the body. A pathologist examines the body and believes it was in this swamp for one to three weeks, and thus ravaged by the heat and the water. They cremate the body, which I'll get to later, with the exception of James's jaw and hands. Two days later, on August 5th, James Jordan's car is found in South Carolina. On August 13th, 10 days after they find James's body, authorities use James's teeth and handprints to identify that it is him. The next day, investigators say they have the two men in custody. 18-year-old Native American Larry Demery an 18-year-old African-American, Daniel Green. Both men are interrogated separately and with no attorney. The day after this, the sheriff holds a press conference to the largest audience he's probably ever had, and according to the sheriff, it's over. The two men who committed this crime are in jail. The district attorney, Johnson Britt, hopes to have both men executed. I'm seeking the death penalty in the case. I think it's a, um, you know, under our statute... Uh, the death penalty is only supposed to apply in, in special type cases, and I believe this is one of those special cases. Larry takes a plea deal offered by the prosecutors. He pleads guilty to being there when the murder happened and to several other robberies. According to the local channel, WRAL, Larry, in turn, is told he'll be eligible for parole after 20 years. Daniel, on the other hand, isn't offered a plea deal. He maintained his innocence saying he wasn't there when the murder happened, but did help Larry afterwards in getting rid of the body. Neither Larry or Daniel knew who the person was when the events took place. However, the jury sentences both men to life in prison with parole, but do not believe the death penalty applies. Johnson Britt, again the district attorney, disagrees with the decision and says afterwards 
that Daniel Green specifically should be executed. It's good that it's behind us. Um, the jury spoke in both cases, and I'm not going to quibble with the jury. Um, if one was more appropriate than the other, um, death was probably more appropriate, in my opinion, for Green um, than Demery. Because of certain laws and the discretionary nature of the parole process, the possibility of either man getting out is extremely unlikely. That has been the story, that these two men killed him. It is what much of the public has been told and have come to believe, including myself, until recently. To give you a sense of the investigation that took place, the State Bureau of Investigation had found Larry and Daniel because they were using James Jordan's car phone. A 1993 New York Times article titled The Nation, So Many Criminals Trip Themselves Up, writes about how foolish this was. Using a victim's car phone will certainly help them sort out where you are. Robeson County Sheriff Hubert Stone, the man investigating the murder, tells reporters that the two used James Jordan's car phone to call friends and a 1-900 sex line, which got a lot of press. However, what Sheriff Hubert Stone doesn't mention is another call Larry makes. There is an FBI teletype from November 1993 that shows one of the first calls Larry makes is to Sheriff Stone's son, Hubert Deese. Stone's son, again Hubert Deese, is a known drug dealer who worked with Larry, the man who took the plea deal. And the sheriff's son is someone the FBI was investigating for nearly a year before the murder. However, during the trial, this was never acknowledged by the state and never brought to the judge's or jury's attention. In the last few months, I have traveled alone twice to meet with Daniel Green at the Lumberton Correctional Institution, a prison in Robeson County. The prison is located near the border of North and South Carolina. As has been the case for me when visiting with inmates in the past, this facility is located in a fairly desolate area and requires driving quite a few miles down a series of one-way roads. As I got closer, I only noticed a dozen or so homes, a gas station attached to a sandwich store, and a small church. Once inside and placed in a prison employee's office, I met Daniel Green. He's about 5'11 and a half, dressed in the fairly common prison garb, all brown scrubs. I was surprised to learn that Daniel had been fighting this case since he was convicted. I've been fighting this case since 2000. You know, I fought this case a long time by myself, you know, by any you know, any means that I had available. You've always claimed innocence on charges of murder, correct? Right. Well, I was charged with murder, armed robbery, and conspiracy to armed robbery. And have pled innocence on all accounts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not guilty. Yeah. And you said since 2000 you've been appealing the decision? Um, well, the appeal was in 1996. I filed in North Carolina a motion for a new trial, which is called a motion for appropriate relief. Filed the first one in 1999, actually late 1999. Um, they have absolutely not, you know, no idea what I was doing. Uh, thought that, okay, I'm going to file these two or three pages and it's going to be over and they're going to move within a certain time limit because that's what it says in the books. And it's just, you know, it's been uh, stretched out. It's stretched out. This also took me by surprise. But when was the last time you've been uh, interviewed in the media at all? Um, it's, it's been 2010. I think 2010. I assumed that Daniel had been interviewed in the last few months, or at least the last few years. 
It's actually been eight years. Now, before moving forward, I want to introduce you to Chris Muma. Chris spent nearly a decade in corporate finance at Nortel Networks in North Carolina. She had enough in the finance world, went to law school, and clerked for I. Beverly Lake Jr., the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. She saw how many people were in prison that shouldn't be and joined the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence in 2001 and went on to spearhead justice reform in the state. We're a nonprofit in North Carolina. We are two focused areas are one uh, investigation of claims of innocence with potential litigation of that claim if we find evidence of innocence and two uh, policy reform, criminal justice reform, when we identify causation issues in our state and potential reforms that can increase the reliability of convictions. Chris represented Dwayne Dale, Joseph Abbott, Johnny Small, Edward McInnes, Greg Taylor, Willie Grimes, Larry Lamb, and Joseph Sledge in their successful post-conviction proceedings. To be clear, that's representing eight people who were in prison for violent crimes they were not responsible for. Additionally, Chris and her team have contributed to the release of 18 other people wrongfully convicted and behind bars. What brought you to the Daniel Green case? So Daniel actually applied with the center, I think, in 2008 and maybe even before then. Um, And one of the criteria for the cases we take is they can't have representation. He had been, um, the judge had appointed counsel for him. Interesting, his post-conviction litigation has actually been going on since 2000. So what we're litigating right now is based on initial claims raised in 2000 where the judge said, okay, you've got some valid claims here. You have a right to counsel. So it's been 17 years. Now, there are eight key points I've found that reveal what really happened in this investigation and trial. But first, I want to get to what Daniel has always said he is guilty of, and that's important. What Daniel has always admitted to is that he helped his friend, Larry, in getting rid of the victim's body. According to Daniel, Larry came to get him in the early morning asking for help. Daniel didn't know why, but finds out by the time they get to the unidentified body. Larry tells Daniel he killed the victim in self-defense. Then the two dispose of the body and proceed to ride in the victim's Lexus for the next three days. Based on the items they find in the car, including jewelry, they realize the car belonged to James Jordan. Says Daniel, I mean, I'm not going to say justify what I did. Um, I was in a car, I was 18 years old. And, you know, like I said, we was just joyriding. Says Chris Muma. So Daniel uh, met Larry in third grade. and at that time, that the school he was attending had just recently been integrated. So there weren't that many black students. Um, and Larry became, you know, befriended him. And they became very close from that point on. Um, so, you know, by the time this happened, they were uh, considered each other kind of like brothers. I felt like I was in a situation where if I didn't um, help Larry, Like, he could have ended up losing his life. And because Larry lived with us, that could have put my family in danger. So it wasn't as clear-cut. He continues. Of course, I come from a family where, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people have been murdered. So I know what what that's like. Like, you know, right now, I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like on one hand, 
I could have lost, I felt like I could have lost one of the few people, in, you know, in life that was family to me. You know, Larry was somebody I deeply cared for. I knew his family. You know, we went to church together. I spent the night at his house before. Um, when this happened, he was living with us. So um, that was somebody I deeply cared for. And I just did what I, you know, in the moment, I didn't think. I can't say I thought long-term consequences. This is somebody asking for my help. And it didn't even occur to me to say no. Uh to say no in terms of helping with uh, the body? Right. Again, Daniel has always admitted to helping his friend with disposing the body and riding the car afterwards. He also seems to have always been consistent in saying where he was when this murder happened and how he had no part in it. So first is the alibi. From my conversation with Chris Muma, again, Daniel's lawyer. Where was Daniel Green when the murder itself took place? He was at a party. Uh, he was at a party that night, and there were a number of alibi witnesses um, who said he was there that night and that uh, Larry actually tried to get him. This party was at Kay Hernandez's house. If interested, some of these facts actually do come out from the original court hearing from Nellie Michael Montez and Monica Hernandez, Kay's daughters. It can be found in the transcript of the trial starting at page 6,182. As it got later in the night, most people left Kay's house or went to bed at Kay's house. But there are three people who stay up watching TV with Daniel and Larry. Monica Hernandez, Kay's daughter, Ebony Green, Daniel's sister, and a friend, Bobby Joe Murillo. Again, according to the defense, Larry leaves alone at around 1.30 a.m., and comes back at around 4.30 a.m. When Larry returns, he's visibly shaken. Larry begs Daniel to get in Larry's car and go somewhere. Larry's loud to the point where Daniel's mom and Kay both hear the ruckus, and Daniel's mom asks the two to either quiet down or leave the house. So they go. Now the obvious question, why didn't any of the people testify, or if they did, what did they say? First, there's Ebony, Daniel's sister. She was too young, and the defense felt the jury wouldn't believe her anyway because she would lie for her brother. Then there is Bobby Joe Murillo. She signed an affidavit in 2016 confirming she was with Daniel. At the time of the trial, the defense opted to not put her on the stand, likely because she was young and the defense thought they could cover the alibi with other witnesses. And then there's the remaining three. Daniel's mother, Anne, Kay Hernandez, whose house it was, and her daughter, Monica, all key individuals that could say they were with Daniel during the hours between 1 a.m., if not earlier than that, to 4.30 a.m., and it is during this time when James Jordan was killed. This time frame, in fact, comes from the state. Now, of these, only Monica testifies. Chris Muma said the following in regards to her testimony. I think Monica's testimony is really strong. It it um, covers the complete um, time frame of of the murder. Uh, you have some people who say, "Yeah, I was at the house with Daniel, but then I left or I went to bed." But in Monica's case, um, she was only gone for a short period of time, and Daniel was only outside for a few minutes. But she is very firm that. Larry left by himself about 1.30 in the morning after going outside with Daniel for just a few minutes. 
Uh, Daniel was then at the, at the house with the others, and then Larry re- returned at 4.30 by himself and was acting very nervous. So uh, that's the critical time frame. And, um, and so I think that her portion of the alibi is, is, is strong, but, um, again, we see these in cases where you're more, the most likely people to give you an alibi are your family members and your friends. And those are the most likely people that a jury is not going to believe. Um, so in this case, he's at a friend's house and, and a friend is, is testifying to protect him and, um, you know. I think they were afraid not they were afraid to believe it the jury the jury so why not ann and Kay? both were on the original witness list but the defense never reads this list to the potential jurors to ensure there isn't a conflict as it turns out juror number 10 james cassidy knows both Kay and nelly very well he used to go to their house until nelly accused james of sexually harassing her The fact that they knew each other, compounded by the allegations of sexual misconduct, would have obviously prevented him from serving on the jury in the first place. In fact, Kay writes a letter to the judge pointing this out. She says that she had to tell James Cassidy to stop coming to her house. The defense could have, but did not, ask for a mistrial. This is one of many examples of insufficient defense for Daniel. On March 28th, 2015, some 20 years after the trial, James Cassidy admitted he had seen the witness list and knew Ann and Kay were going to testify as alibi witnesses. Clearly, he should have been disqualified from serving on the jury. According to Daniel's current defense, Cassidy was also friendly with a man named Ronald Fletcher, who had also been to Kay and Nellie's home. Ronald Fletcher knew the district attorney Johnson Britt, and during the trial, Fletcher went to Britt's office. What Fletcher said to Johnson Britt seems random. Fletcher claimed that he heard Kay was going to testify as an alibi witness, and he thought Kay might perjure herself. Fletcher told Johnson Britt that Kay told him that Daniel's mother told her that Daniel had told his mom that he killed James Jordan. Fletcher was willing to take the stand and say this. As it turns out, Fletcher heard this from Cassidy. Why did Fletcher come forward to say this to Johnson Britt? Says Chris Muma. So my thoughts are that Ann and Kay had had talked uh, about the fact that, that Daniel had been in the car and had some jewelry that from the victim that was in the car. And so so Fletcher knew that Daniel was involved in some way, and when he he heard from Cassidy that Ann and Kay were going to be alibi witnesses, he he decided he was going to uh, help to ensure that the person he thought was guilty was convicted um, by either consciously or subconsciously expanding the information he had. Uh, to say that Daniel had confessed. Um, and we, we see this a lot with tunnel vision and bias, even with law enforcement, where someone uh, believes a particular person is guilty. And if the facts are a little shaky, the evidence is a little shaky, they do what they can to affirm that evidence or fact up to ensure there's a conviction. The result appears clear. Johnson Britt added Fletcher as a state witness. 
According to the defense, by doing this, if Ann or Kay were to take the stand, Fletcher would then be called on to reveal his claim that he had heard that Daniel admitted to the murder of James Jordan. And thus, the original defense team led by the public defender Angus Thompson decided not to call on two of Daniel's key alibi witnesses. Chris points out, You know, some of that evidence was available at the time of trial. There is uh, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim associated with the post-conviction claim. In other words, Daniel's constitutional rights were violated during the trial. He didn't have an effective counsel. Before going through the largest issues I find with this case, Daniel makes a crucial point for people like him in this position when I ask the following question. What are uh, some of the ways in which uh, you think there's tangible evidence that proves your innocence? Uh, Well, first of all, I don't think that there was ever any evidence to prove guilt. Um, We had a trial where you had one person saying that I killed uh, James Jordan. You had other witnesses that were put on the stand uh, to corroborate those claims. He continues. And I think the problem with a case like this, um, and especially at this stage, is that you have expectations that can't be met. Um, People say, well, prove you're innocent. You can't prove you didn't do something um, beyond you being somewhere else. Um, When this murder happened, I was at somebody else's house. Um, None of those people had a reason to lie. It wasn't until after Larry killed James Jordan that Larry goes to pick up Daniel and ask Daniel to help him dispose of the body. And it isn't the only time Daniel has been wrongfully convicted of a crime. All of this I will get to using only facts. Again, Daniel Green has always maintained his innocence in the murder of James Jordan. Now, all of this is shocking and sad, but I remember for the case I documented with Ryan Ferguson that this is something that happens. To be transparent, Ryan is a good friend. He's also a respected advocate across the country for people who have been through an experience like Daniel has. When I asked Ryan what he made of what Daniel told me about trying to prove his innocence when he wasn't there, Ryan volunteered to tell me the following. As a reminder, I made a documentary about Ryan who was wrongfully convicted of murder, incarcerated for 10 years before he was let free. So Daniel's case is really interesting because what I find is what you find in a lot of innocence cases, much like mine, is that people say, prove your innocence to me. And that's somewhat absurd in our modern legal system. You know, the accused is theoretically presumed innocent, and therefore this question of prove your innocence to me should not be necessary in our current criminal legal arena. So I like to go back and start with what is there that proves guilt? Same with my case, same with Daniel's case. What can we look at that would prove guilt? Well, in my case, just as in Daniel's, there's nothing. You have an eyewitness testimony that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the facts of the case. And so these are things that are very troublesome. And you want something that's tangible, something that's real, something that's based in logic. And there's nothing like that in Daniel's case, just as there wasn't in mine, just as there wasn't in so many wrongful conviction cases. So that, that is a huge red flag. And that's kind of where I like to start when looking at his case. So let's look at the case. And like Ryan said, examine any red flags. 
Before moving forward, and to be clear, we're taking a clean break right now from the episode for a word from Blue Apron. When I was 19 years old, I moved into a nursing home and made a documentary about my summer staying in room 335 with over 200 residents. I became close with Tammy, 96 years old, and a person who has made a huge impact on my life. In the documentary, she said something beautiful, that it doesn't take much to make somebody feel good. Do something nice for someone. Say something nice to them. With that in mind, I've used Blue Apron to help make friends having a bad few days or a bad few weeks feel better. Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the U.S. Blue Apron takes their job seriously, and they achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and are now offering 12 new recipes each week. Their support for this show continues, and they're now treating what really happened listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash WRH. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash WRH. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So let's look at the case. And like Ryan said, examine any red flags. First is the blood of James Jordan. Then you get into the evidence, the blood evidence, uh, where the quote-unquote forensic scientist says, in my opinion, the substance that was in that car was blood. And when you have a forensic scientist who says that, the jury gives it a lot of credibility. And, right. But in fact, she could not reach that conclusion as a scientist because the four confirmatory tests she conducted on that substance were not positive for blood. Uh, so that's, you know, you have a, if you have a murder that supposedly happened in the car and there's no blood in the car, that raises a big red flag. Um, and again, the defense theory was that he was not killed in the car. I'd like to point out that much of this has been reported on by Martha Wagner of the Associated Press. Martha is a groundbreaking journalist and is also an assignment editor covering North and South Carolina. She has been tracking this story for years. The Charlotte Observer, including Michael Gordon and Mark Washburn, among other papers, have also reported about this at length. A key name in this investigation is Jennifer Elwell, who worked for the SBI, the State Bureau of Investigation. According to the current defense, during the original trial, the district attorney intentionally exaggerated Jennifer Elwell's findings of blood in James Jordan's car. Elwell has told the defense that should she take the stand in a retrial, she will say something astonishing, that a supervisor ordered, ordered Elwell to destroy the only known sample of James Jordan's blood. She'll go on to say that in her more than 20 years of working with the state, she has never been told to dispose of blood evidence from a murder trial. Elwell says that she couldn't confirm the presence of blood and that the stains on the car seat, quote, could have been anything. As it turns out, Elwell was one of the North Carolina State Lab scientists who was identified in a 2010 independent review of the lab's biology section as using misleading language in her reports. The language she previously used in reports is no longer allowed. 
Chris Muma argues, and I'd suggest any layman would agree, the absence of blood in the car undermines the prosecution's theory that James Jordan was killed in his car. Reason two, the jury forewoman, Paula Locklear, said in a sworn statement that she did her own investigation during the trial. She says that during the trial, she visited the South Carolina area where the body was found and developed her own theory on how the murder occurred. It's a direct violation of what the judge said during the opening of the hearing. Additionally, Locklear had known and attended church with Larry Demery's mother for many years. Another juror conflict. Reason three, James Jordan's shirt. Dr. Joel Sexton, another key name, performed the autopsy. In his written autopsy document, Dr. Sexton found three holes, not noted as bullet holes, but three holes near the bottom of the victim, James Jordan's shirt. Why are there three holes on the bottom of Mr. Jordan's shirt? Different people have different opinions on this, but what is known is what Dr. Sexton writes in his report, that he specifically looked for and didn't find a hole in the right chest area of the shirt that corresponded with James Jordan's fatal wound. He notes three holes would only make it to James Jordan's chest if his shirt had been pulled up about a foot. What the defense team doesn't know is how did this hole show up on the shirt after the medical examiner couldn't find one? Well, something very bizarre happens at this point. After the autopsy, Dr. Sexton gives the shirt of the unidentified victim to a law enforcement officer. This officer then gave the shirt to a civilian employee of a company that provided services for funeral homes. That employee gave the shirt to his boss, who said he buried it in his backyard because of the smell. South Carolina law enforcement later realized that the shirt belonged to James Jordan and that it was evidence, and so then unburied the shirt and gave it to an agent at the SBI. This agent then testified that a bullet hole was present in the right chest area of the shirt, saying that the shirt, quote, marked the location where the single fatal bullet traversed the victim's clothing and entered his body. The agent does not explain the three holes in the lower section of James's shirt, and none of Daniel's attorneys ask about this or why the medical examiner couldn't find a hole in the upper right portion of the shirt during his examination but the hole is there at the time of trial. Also, the prosecution said that gunshot residue was found on the shirt, which would be strange given that it had been submerged in water for upwards of three weeks. Before getting to reason number four, at this point, you may be thinking, what were Daniel's attorneys doing at the time? For me, it seems like his attorney, Angus Thompson, the public defender, screwed up. Big time. But Daniel provides more context. How do you think he handled the original case? Well, so I'm going to tell you something I didn't realize until about four years ago, is that uh, Angus was the first public defender here in Robinson County. So like, he was tasked with um, trying to, to establish a public defender's office. Um, and trying to pull that together. It's not like you have, it's not like there's a lot of people just waiting to go into that. There's no playbook to that. So um, I just think that, you know, he did what he, you know, the best he could maybe possibly do. 
Angus took a job nobody else seemingly was willing to do, to help people like Daniel. Thus, Angus faced a nearly impossible task. It's important to note that Daniel did add the following. If you ask me if I felt like that, I received uh, the type of defense that I should have, I don't think I did. Reason four. Despite being unsure of the victim's identity, James Jordan's body was cremated three days after his body was found. Why the rush to cremate the body? Among other reasons, they didn't have a place to store the body. Reason five, says Daniel during our interview. You've had people come forward that um, Larry told, you know, that he confessed to some of the guys who were in prison. One of the, I think, ladies, she was, she was an editor of a newspaper, of a local newspaper from his tribe. This local newspaper editor is Connie Brayboy, who says in a 2015 statement that Larry told her he did kill James Jordan. Brayboy admits she hadn't said anything until 2015 because she knew Larry Demery's mother and was concerned for her safety. The motion cites three other people who say that Larry told them that he killed James and did it alone. This motion has been covered by the local papers, including the Robesonian. It's worth noting that local papers, local journalists, have covered these appeals for years now. Reason six. When you first walked into the interrogation room uh, or the office, uh, you asked for an attorney early on? Yeah, I said, I'd like to have a lawyer. And, and they say, yeah, okay, we got one. One is on the way. Um, and then I was like, you know, do you mind, you know, hey, how you, you know, you mind talking, everything cool? We just, you know, talk to you and get here. And then how long until one got there? Uh, it didn't. The lawyer never came. Never came. The issue that Daniel was not given a lawyer was presented before the trial in a suppression motion, but it was denied. Authorities said that Daniel continued to speak voluntarily. While Daniel was getting interrogated, Larry was in another room and was also being interrogated. In fact, twice on that same day. The best I can tell from the transcripts of the interrogation is that Larry was threatened with a death penalty. At one point, an officer telling him, quote, that's a needle up your ass, son, and you don't wake up from it. And Reno, he was told he would get a lighter sentence if he testified. It also seems, from reading these interrogation transcripts, that Larry was told Daniel had turned on him, saying that Larry did it, which isn't true. Daniel didn't know what happened. He told them, as he said to me and anyone else that would listen all of these years, he wasn't there. Larry takes a plea deal. We don't know what the deal was because it doesn't seem to have been properly documented. But we do know that he goes on to testify that he was there and saw Daniel kill the man who they'd later discover was James Jordan. Reason number seven. You may remember towards the beginning, I said that one of the first phone calls made from James Jordan's car phone was to the sheriff's son, Hubert Deese. Hubert was a Robeson County drug dealer and was sent to federal prison in 1994. In an interview with Hubert Deese in 2014, he confirmed that both he and Larry worked for Crestline Mobile Homes a company which specialized in luxury mobile homes. According to the DEA, drugs were smuggled through these mobile luxury homes. And according to the initial trial, on page 3,990 of the transcript, 
the body was found a mile from the offices of Crestline Mobile Homes. Chris Muma explains how the District Attorney Johnson Britt and the Sheriff's Department conspired to hide the secret from the jury. It's hard to say it's not corruption um, or misconduct of some type when people, one, know that the sheriff's son is in, involved in drug trafficking, uh, two, know that the sheriff knows the son is involved in drug trafficking, three, know that the son was called right after the murder, four, know the, that there's investigation to drug trafficking being conducted by the SBI and the FBI. Um, that was, I was all known at the time of trial and not disclosed uh, to the judge when he is trying to make this critical decision about whether that information can be used as part of the defense and then, and then ruling against it being used because it's not an established fact. Reason number eight. Hubert Stone, the sheriff at Robeson County, was a man whom the media was listening to as an objective officer that followed facts. The New York Times had a 1993 article I found titled, Suspects Have Spent Lives in Trouble, in which, frankly, the headline alone suggests both are guilty. What the media was reporting mattered not just in terms of public opinion, but because, and in the grand scheme of things, all of this seems minor, but at least one juror, it actually happens to be Mr. Cassidy again, was following the reporting against the judge's orders. I only have listed eight pillars that I consider to be the most egregious. Each one of these alone could warrant a mistrial in their own right. Remember, on top of the corruption, there is no DNA evidence. There is no physical evidence. And other than Larry Demery, there are no witnesses that tie Daniel to the murder. I'm again taking a break here to thank Skillshare. As many of you know, I'm very proud of the All-American High School Film Festival, the largest high school film festival in the world that I founded with a former high school teacher of mine. We've now given over a million dollars in scholarships and prizes. And to be clear, I don't make a penny. It's for the young filmmakers around the world. Over 30 countries have now submitted films. And at our annual festival in Times Square, people of all ages, parents, students, and just audience members ask me about different ways they can learn more about the intersection of modern business, and filmmaking. One great source is Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes in design, business, technology, and much more. It's certainly much more than just film. For my listeners only, Skillshare is offering a special deal. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering What really happened to listeners, all of you guys, two months of unlimited access to over 18,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash WRH. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash WRH to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash WRH. Before I continue... I want to address something head on. If you go online and read about Daniel Green's life before being arrested for James's death, you'll read about how when Daniel was 16, he was sent to prison for attempting murder with an axe. But if you read past these headlines, you'll see after two and a half years in prison, the charges were vacated because of ineffective assistance of counsel 
for not raising self-defense. He wasn't attempting to kill. He was attempting to stay alive. I asked Daniel about this. He does not dispute that he picked up an axe that was on the front porch where he was being confronted. As is typically the case in my experience with Daniel, if you ask him about what happened, he gives you a full answer. He'll tell you what he's guilty of and what he's innocent of. And as I said, the courts came to this conclusion as well. But these two and a half years certainly shaped Daniel as he was put in prison at 16 years old. He provides further context that most haven't given him the chance to speak to, mainly because few have asked him. I'm at 16 years old when I got locked up, um, like on that track for college. You know, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to college. That's what's expected of me. You know, that's that's the goal. Uh, and then you find yourself locked up. And at the time that I was locked up, I was not yet vindicated, but I was eventually vindicated on that charge. It was vacated. It was overturned um, for a variety of reasons. So being that at the time that the police, like my whole thing was I've just spent two and a half years where we were, you know, beat up, um, you know, put in solitary confinement with no light. Um, Sometimes put in solitary confinement where you're just like in a cell with bars uh, for six months at a time. Um, You have officers, you know, sending guys to rape other guys, or you having officers having fights, arranging fights and betting on fights. You have officers um, calling you, um, you know, you want no smart, uh, you know, you, you know, you want no smart niggas. You know, um, that was the thing for two and a half years. And so when I think that when I came out, it's like, you know, I know nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to, no matter what you say, it doesn't matter. It can make all the sense in the world. You can have all the evidence in the world. Whatever they say is what's going to go. That's it. And um, so that's that was kind of, you know, that was that's what happened. But that case was vacated. It was overturned after I did the time. Now, this is not relevant to Daniel's murder trial, but I've seen reports that inaccurately use this, even the New York Times, to suggest that he had this criminal background. Daniel is not a perfect person. He's made mistakes. I have now taken two trips to Lumberton a small city in Robeson County, which is near the border of North and South Carolina. Any account I can give is limited given this all happened about 25 years ago, but I tried speaking with people in the area who were there when this happened. Most would not allow me to record their thoughts on what happened for fear of retribution by local police or others that I couldn't identify. One woman, Sarah, Caucasian, in her 60s and fearless, said I could use her last name and exact job, but... For her own safety, I'll just use my interview with her at the motel she works, which in years past has also served as a housing unit for convicts when jails or prisons have been overpopulated. She said there were pros and cons to the community and talked about the times the community has come together. The people in Lumberton here, mm-hmm. when Hurricane Matthew come through and everything just basically went to H in an egg basket, the people in this community here came together and what they give to people was unbelievable. She continues. But there's one particular church, they come over here, and if there's ever been a shindig thrown down, no shindig, mm. it was amazing. Hot dogs, hamburgers, steaks, pork chops, chicken, uh, 
you name it, they cooked it. And I called the police department myself and asked them captain or whoever was over them, would they mind if they come over here and ate too because they worked those boys men and women in the police department fantastic people and the uh, EMTs emergency medical people fantastic people like I said I've met a good amount of some strong people out here only when I asked her about any negative sides of the community did she provide this side of life in Lumberton uh yeah uh some of these other folks down here, they don't care whether you breathe or die. They wouldn't give you an air and a jug. And some are, but some Just are violent or? Yeah, yeah, they're violent. They'll push you right off the sidewalk to get where they're going. Rob you right in the street. Uh, we've had four or five people killed here for whatever reason they were killed for. Uh, I'm almost sure it was about Knowledge about knowledge, something that all five of these people knew. This was recent. About three months ago, they found four girls and a guy dead. One was cut up. Whatever these girls knew, and that guy knew, undoubtedly they was going to tell on the person. They're investigating that at the police department. Yeah. So you see, we have good and bad in everything, even our police department here, because they do believe it was a dirty cop that killed I spoke with another person, Carmen, in her 40s, also Caucasian, who lived in the area when James Jordan died and still lives there today. She told me about the spectacle of when Daniel and Larry were both arrested. I found what she said interesting because while she said she didn't know enough about the case to have an opinion, she did say, quote, I remember passing the courthouse, press and them everywhere people waiting to get a glimpse of the guys. It was guilty before innocent. Who did this needed to fry and be done. No ifs, ands, or buts. This was not innocent until proven guilty. According to a 1988 New York Times article, Assistant U.S. Attorney William A. Webb, in charge of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force at the time, described the county as, quote, a wash in cocaine. He added, That cocaine trafficking involves tens of millions of dollars in that county. Every time we think we've got the players identified, something will happen to show us things are larger than we thought. In the early 1990s, the violence in Robeson County remained astronomically high when compared to most places in the rest of the country. In a January 14, 1991 article from the Daily Tar Heel, Alvis Dunn, an expert who studied Robeson County, said, quote, The population of Robeson County is divided into one-third black, one-third Indian, and one-third white. There are a lot more intricacies in Robeson County. There are a lot of fishy things about the legal system in Robeson County. In a lot of ways, you've got apartheid in Robeson County, unquote. One reporter who seems to have been all over this at an early stage is Scott Rabb who writes what appears to be a well-researched 1994 article about his time trying to understand the case while in Robeson County. However, his article came out before the trial and the conviction. In his article, he notes, quote, Poverty claims 15% of the county's white children, more than one-third of the Indian children, and more than half of the black children, unquote. Now, 25 years later, Poverty and crime remain high. According to the local channel WRAL, more than one-third of the households in Robeson County live on less than $15,000 a year. 
The county has the third highest poverty level in the country for a county its size. But as a friend of mine living in a township in South Africa once told me, living in poverty doesn't mean you're poor. And trust me, Robeson has heart. While I was there, everyone I met could not have been nicer. Many conversations ending with somebody smiling and saying they hoped I had a blessed day. There is an impressive annual book fair held at the local community college in September. The downtown Lumberton, Carolina Civic Center has a wide range of performances, and people like Dr. Robin Peace, who refers to herself as a preacher of better health, has won numerous awards for her work in the medical field. Robeson County has a long, complicated history, but for now, I'd like to stick to what I think is the most important fact about this area as it pertains to this case. Robeson County is at the intersection of U.S. Route 74 and Interstate 95. 74 helps take you across the country, east-west. I-95 takes you up and down the east coast, Maine to Florida. The current mayor touts this strategic location and uses the slogan, Stop here, you're halfway there. He also makes note of their 1,500 hotel rooms along the interstate making the area an easy location to stop while traveling. However, this is also why the area is a hub for both drug and human trafficking. Libby Maggie Coles, chair for the Human Trafficking Commission, said in a recent interview unrelated to this case, but as it pertains to this area, quote, we have a lot of interstates, so it's easy for these people to be shipped up the East Coast and East to West. This same intersection is where authorities say James Jordan pulled to the side of the road to take a nap late in the night, sleepy after driving for approximately an hour and a half. He parked his car in a dark area near a Quality Inn hotel some 300 yards away. At the time all of this happened, Hubert Stone was the sheriff of Robeson County. And so, in order to understand the investigation, it's vital for us to know those who investigated this case and the man in charge. Hubert Stone was the county sheriff for four consecutive terms. Stone had a great deal of power. The local newspaper, The Robesonian, describes Stone as, quote, a shrewder politician Robeson County might have ever produced. Those who sought political office in this county needed his blessing, but his clout extended far beyond Robeson County as others seeking state office tried to hitch their wagon to his political machinery. Bo Biggs, the former chair of the Robeson County Board of Elections, said, quote, He was part of the generation of the good old boy network and the era where a sheriff commands huge political power in the county. Even the governor sought the sheriff's endorsement. He continued, All sheriffs have their controversies, but he really had his share. In my research to understand Hubert Stone, I wanted to ensure that I didn't single-story him. I didn't want to only use all of the bad quotes or facts that speak to his career. Former U.S. Representative Charlie Rose, who knew Stone for 30 years, said, quote, He was a tough sheriff, and Robeson County is not an easy place to be sheriff. It is difficult to get around the controversies that surround Stone's tenure as sheriff. I want to take a break to talk about another partner that has supported us throughout the first season of this podcast, and that is Sleep Number. Sleep Number beds cost about the same as a traditional mattress, 
last twice as long, and 9 out of 10 owners recommend them. If you come in now during their Ultimate Sleep Number event, you can save 50% on an Ultimate Limited Edition bed. Plus, queen mattresses start at $699.99. Sleep Number now has over 550 stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com. I want to thank them again for their support and encourage you to check out sleepnumber.com. It is difficult to get around the controversies that surround Stone's tenure as sheriff. First is what federal agents called Operation Tarnished Badge, which brought guilty pleas from 22 Robeson County officers on theft, kidnapping, assault, and drug-related charges. The biggest police corruption scandal in North Carolina history. On at least one occasion, federal agents raided the sheriff's department. Second, two years earlier, Hubert Stone was criticized by some residents after the death of a man who was shot by Hubert Stone's son during a traffic stop. This son, Kevin Stone, not to be confused with his other son, Hubert Desi, was a narcotics agent with the sheriff's office at the time. An SBI investigation exonerated Kevin Stone. Hubert Stone would go on to say that he investigated more murders than any officer in the nation. And this, the one involving his son, was the only one he didn't solve. Third, in 1988, Eddie Hatcher and Timothy Jacobs seized the offices of the local newspaper. They held the staff captive for 10 hours, keeping people in place with shotguns. The two had attempted reaching out to the DEA and FBI, but they had been ignored, and this was their last attempt at trying to get the world to take notice. They had hard evidence, maps of drop-off points, names of drug-dealing deputies, and details of Hubert Stone's department's hand in the local drug trade. Fourth, only a few months after the hostage, Julian Pierce, a civil rights lawyer, was expected to become the state's first Native American judge, which was a turning point since Native Americans and African Americans were a two-thirds majority in the county at the time. But weeks before the election, Julian Pierce was killed. Somebody broke into Pierce's house, but three days later, Hubert Stone said the case was solved because the killer had committed suicide. With Pierce's death, the only remaining candidate for the judicial seat was Joe Freeman Britt, the former district attorney who Stone openly endorsed. Britt was proud for entering the Guinness Book of World Records after listing him as, quote, the deadliest prosecutor, with 45 death sentences to his name. Fifth, Stone wrote a letter of character reference to federal prosecutors in 1987 for a man who was one of the biggest drug dealers in Robeson County history. He once said, quote, anytime you look down the street and you see a black and an Indian guy, you've got crime. You know you're not supposed to look at things like that, but that's the way it is. If they're running together, something's up. We always know when we spot a car and see him, an Indian and a black, there's going to be some crime. We have to keep a firm hand on him. It's not like Philadelphia or New York. Down here, the sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer. Daniel puts in context why, perhaps, Hubert Stone got away with such blatant corruption. About Hubert Stone, um, I would describe him as Dixie Mafia. You know, uh, 
I know a lot of people love them. A lot of people like them because there's not a lot of jobs in this area. So if you're in an area where there's no jobs and somebody allows you to to do whatever you have to do to feed your family, then that, you know, that, you know, engenders support. Um, but that's all I, like I said, I don't know too much about them. All of this explains the following exchange between myself and Daniel. Daniel's talking about when he and Larry were driving James Jordan's car. A police vehicle pulled them over. We was coming up this road, I think it's 72, and the police stopped us in that car. Uh, Larry got out of the car, spoke to the guy, got back in the car, and we left. I knew before our arrest that the police were involved with some of the things that he were involved in. Like, I knew that there was a, that there was a, um, I guess you'd say like a conspiracy or, or I mean, basically pol- police were involved with selling drugs. He was involved with moving drugs. Larry. Right. So when I'm going in to talk to the police, this is the thing you have to understand. It's like, okay, you don't want to be seen as somebody that's snitching that, that would possibly tell the truth because you don't know who you're talking to. You're talking to somebody in a uniform, but you don't know if this is a person that's actually part of this. And when you say something to him, he's going to go back, yeah, this guy said, so let's go ahead and get rid of this guy. Uh, so it was just a lot of back and forth and not any truth. I don't think there was even a search for truth. I don't think that was the purpose. Added Chris Muma. He was worried that people who were in- interrogating him were people who were involved in the drug trafficking, who were working with Larry. And so he... He couldn't trust anybody he was talking to. This corruption is vital. Without understanding it, it's nearly impossible to understand how this case was so horrendously handled. With that said, it's important to not single story the police force in the county. I am not casting a generalization amongst people who risk their lives. I'm talking about this singular case, the people involved, and their history. So, with all of this, Where are we today? Larry Demery is now parole eligible, but it's hard to know if he'll ever actually get out. Most would say unlikely. He hasn't even been moved to minimum custody yet. Daniel won't be eligible for review until 2025, but that doesn't mean he'll get out then. In fact, it's highly unlikely. What Daniel has confessed to, accessory after the fact, was illegal and wrong. The presumptive sentence in 1993 was three years in prison. Daniel has served over two decades. And now, and this is key, if the state does not take action, Daniel Green, now 43 years old and locked up since he was 18, will serve the rest of his life in prison. Because District Attorney Johnson Britt is a witness in the post-conviction allegations, the North Carolina Attorney General is now overseeing this case. I asked Chris, where are you in terms of Daniel Green and and um, that appeals process? So Daniel, um, things were actually starting to move forward. Um, he had two uh, very good attorneys, Scott Holmes and Ian Mance, who were um, had identified most of these claims years ago, and there a judge had been appointed. And he was an emergency judge, so this was one of his uh, only cases that emergency judges are assigned to kind of fill in where the bench has got too much to handle. Hmm. Um, And then the legislature 
um, earlier this year uh, passed legislation um, limiting the number of emergency judges. So the judge that was on this case was removed from the case. We had this happen in, in another one of the cases that we're working on. Unbelievable. And a new judge has been appointed. And now the new judge is having to get up to speed on these issues. And uh, so we're, we're basically waiting to hear from the bench. And any, uh, any sense of when that may be? No. Everything has yeah. been filed. So the defense has filed all of its motions and the state has filed all its responses. So, um, I mean, where we are right now is not, not what kind of relief is going to be given. Hmm. We still haven't been told whether he can be given an evidentiary hearing. At the beginning of this podcast, I asked what really happened. And although there are many moving parts to this case, my conclusion is simple and based on facts. In order for Sheriff Hubert Stone and his team to solve this case, they needed a witness. Until they started making up evidence, they had nothing else. The phone records indicated it was likely Larry or Daniel. Daniel Green was honest in maintaining his innocence with regards to the murder of James Jordan. So the investigators knew they had to get Larry Demery to say Daniel did it. The two were both put in separate interrogation rooms. Neither had lawyers present, not to mention both were only 18 years old. And Larry was told that Daniel was pinning it on him, which he wasn't. But investigators told Larry that unless he could offer a plausible story, he was going to get the death penalty. So Larry took the plea deal offered by the prosecutors. As if this isn't enough, remember that the victim's blood was ordered to be destroyed. Remember that the victim's shirt didn't have a hole in the chest area, but suddenly did after being dug out from the ground. Remember that several people have said under oath that they were with Daniel when this murder happened. And remember that several people have said that Larry has admitted to them that he was the one that murdered the victim. This is why I strongly believe that Daniel Green did not kill James Jordan, that he wasn't even there when it happened, and why Daniel Green doesn't just deserve a mistrial, that in fact, the charges against Daniel Green should be dropped, and that he finally be given his freedom. You can reach out to Chris Muma via email at the following address, admin at nccai.org or via phone 919-489-3268. Hubert Stone passed away in 2008. District Attorney Johnson Britt could not be reached for comment. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. What Really Happened is produced by Seven Bucks Productions in coordination with Cadence 13. A special thanks to Bill Schultz for all of his editing and putting up with my endless changes. You can listen to any of our episodes by subscribing to What Really Happened on Apple Podcasts or listen on Google Play, Spotify, our website, jankspod.com, or wherever you get your shows. Next week, in our episode Black Dog, I spoke with Winston Churchill biographer and best-selling author Paul Reed. We looked into Churchill's mental health, and I opened up about my own struggles with depression. For our reaction episode, I speak with Paul about 
Some of the funny quotes from Churchill that are online and turn out are made up. And I also have a conversation I'll never forget with Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, one of the leading experts on mental health, particularly with America's veterans and one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, a list I have a love-hate relationship with. That is next week on What Really Happened.